This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland is the second of a series of four titled Reconsidering Mindfulness. It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on February 23, 2012. Good evening, please. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the incompetent technical... <laughs> Empire of awakened light. Um, because mindfulness seems to be the way that uh, the Dharma has first and most successfully landed in mainstream American culture, I thought it might be interesting to be mindful about mindfulness and take a look at that from our perspective. So we started that last week, and it looks to be a, an ever-growing series. Um, so this week I want to continue with that, um, that exploration of mindfulness as we might hold it in our tradition. And one of the things I talked about last week was that we think of our practice as a kind of three-legged stool. And one leg is certainly mindfulness, and another leg is concentration practice, which is that deeply focused practice that leads into samadhi um, and then the third leg being what we loosely call inquiry which is the way of the koans um, and, but involves a lot more than asking questions it involves a kind of deep engagement with the, the, the mystery of things so concentration as a practice tends toward our having an experience of the vastness, of emptiness. And mindfulness tends toward our having an experience of the embodied world, of the world outside our own skulls and skin. And inquiry then becomes a way of really looking at how we take the understandings we get from, from concentration and mindfulness practice and make a life out of them. So, one of the things I talked about was that mindfulness and concentration had been traditionally coupled in, um, in Mahayana and all of, all of Buddhist um, practice. And if, my, if concentration tends toward the vastness and mindfulness tends toward the embodied world, then deliberately there is a, a tension set up between those two things. And um, if that feels a bit abstract, Pretty much everybody who engages in practice at one time or another feels a kind of tension between, you know, my peaceful, happy place and um, life. <laughs> that that there is that tension between what we can experience in meditation and on retreat, and then what happens every day of our lives when we're confronted with the complexities of being embodied beings. Um, so w w there is this tension that gets it set up and, and, and the idea is not to choose one over the other which is a pretty common error that people in our line of practice make thinking that one is better than the other and you have to fall down on one side or another but actually if what we're looking for is the way to bring the two together um, and what it's like to have that as a one whole practice with, say, 
concentration as the inhale and mindfulness as the exhale. Or concentration as the kind of laser light, the very focused, pinpointed light, and mindfulness as a more diffuse light. We talked about it last week as though concentration were um, there you are standing on a stage and there's a spotlight on you and then suddenly the house lights come up and you see everything else that's in the theater and that's the light of mindfulness. So um, how, how we're always looking at how we um, hold that creative tension between those two different ways of experiencing things and how do we resolve that tension in a way that includes them both. So one of the things we, we were just touching on last week was some of what, what might get lost if mindfulness is extracted out of its context. And that's certainly one of the things, is that very creative tension I'm just talking about now, the relationship with concentration. And another thing I mentioned that I, I, I think it's important to be aware of is there can be a tendency in the way mindfulness is being looked at to actually reinforce the self. Here I am attending carefully. Here I am really noticing what's going on around me. Here I am really paying attention. I, 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 I. Um, that's a little problematic from a, a Dharma perspective since the whole thing is supposed to be about a kind of subversion of that focus on the self. So something to be aware of. and. Um, and, and so that's where I want to start tonight um, and just say that, that both concentration and mindfulness are intended to actually pull us away from that self-centered view, that self-centered experience of things. Um, and they both do it by showing us a much bigger world. They both do it by saying things are way bigger and way more mysterious than um, those, the small story we're always narrating inside our heads. Concentration does that by bringing us to an experience of emptiness or the vastness. So we see the whole big giant thing, um, which puts the, the self in a, in a mighty different perspective. And, and now I want to turn to how it is that mindfulness also pulls us off of that self-centered position. Um, with a practice of, of mindfulness as we understand it, our allegiance begins to shift from that individual narrative, that story that's running in our heads that's telling us not only what's happening all the time, but what it means and how we should feel about it, that multi-layered narrative. Um, it, it begins to help us move our allegiance from that story, from that narrative of our lives, um, to life itself. So from the story to the actual thing that's happening, um, to what is visible or imaginable beyond the realm of the individual and the personal story. Um, and mindfulness shows us, and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, but I just want to touch on it here. Mindfulness really shows us that awakening is something that happens in relationship. It happens in the space between us. It happens in what we 
do together. It doesn't happen behind our eyes. And we have to be able to get out of the personal narrative, um, get out of that self-centered position in order to notice that actually where the juice is, is in the space we share and the space we make together. Um, That's where reality is. Reality is not in the story. It's in the shared space between us. And how mindfulness does that is by giving us an exquisite experience of the differences and the particularities of each thing. And in really taking in the particularities of each thing and how each thing is different from every other thing and unique and precious in that particularity, um, we see, we begin to see the other as real. It's a shocking concept. Um, Emerson said, we should treat women and men as though they are real, they just might be. <laughs> and there's that sense that, that, that mindfulness offers that to us, you know, that when something is so vivid to you, it's hard to, to ignore it, it's hard to pretend that it isn't, that it isn't real. When, I'm going to talk probably a, a few times about um, the other, and by that I don't just mean the mo- sort of postmodern sense of that which is unfamiliar or strange, um, and I don't just mean people. I think by the other, I mean everything in the world that is um, that is other than ourselves. So that's all all beings of all kinds, from from humans to rocks. Um, so so we see the particularities of things. It begins to dawn on us that things are really real. They're as real as we are, um, and that in Western philosophical language. They have a moral claim on us because of their reality. And we'll explore that some more later. But if they are real, we have to have, we have to take seriously their moral claim on us to um, allow their existence, to support their existence, to have decent, uh, kind um, relationships with them. Um, something that's important about all of this, I think, is that in distinction to the way that mindfulness is sometimes um, marketed in this country, uh, the goal here is not, this is really shocking, individual happiness. <laughs> that's not what this practice is for. Um, the goal is to more clearly see what reality is. The goal is to come into a more intimate and direct relationship with the way things actually are. It may well be that happiness is a byproduct of that coming into a truer relationship with the way things are, and that's a good thing, but it's not where we're aimed. We're really aimed at this real and intimate and unobstructed relationship with the way things are, which is, in this view, Gigantic, mysterious, uncontrollable, completely interpermeated, everything much more than interconnected, interpermeated, everything affecting everything else all the time. And a reality that asks something of us. That by the very nature of our existence, it's impossible for us to separate ourselves out because everything's interpermeated and that asks something of us.
it's it's um, possible and, and my experience that for some people that does lead immediately to happiness to see that more clearly to come into a relationship with that and live with that um, more and more all the time that intimacy with reality immediately leads to a happiness that has a lot of awe in it and a lot of a sense of the the poignant heartbreaking beauty of things um, if that is so for any particular one of us um, great carry on <laughs> there's something to do after that and the next thing to do is once we are aware that that's the way the universe really is we have to discover how each of us as an individual lives in that universe not the universe of our personal narrative not the universe of our um, thoughts and feelings only um, not the universe that we've been making up our whole lives but the universe as it actually is that's the next move uh, if it doesn't lead immediately to happiness this this um, engagement with how things really are um, then it shows us where we need to work to enable us to come into that kind of relationship why doesn't it make us immediately happy that's a really important question what happens instead um, I'm thinking of a comment that someone made in the koan salon yesterday that um, every time she touches emptiness, every time she touches the vastness, the self kind of arises again and is afraid. So if that's the experience, which is quite common, then the question becomes, what's the nature of that fear? Where is it that we bounce off of the experience of the reality of things? And that's where we need to work. So that's good information, too. Even if it doesn't make us immediately happy, it tells us something really important about where our work is um, in, that, in, in, in this time. Um, okay, so to continue with this unself-centering function of mindfulness that's, that's so critical, um, often we think of mindfulness as being how we're seeing things. Are we being attentive? Are we being careful? So, to use another light metaphor, and these seem to keep coming up in this regard, it's as though we're wearing a miner's headlamp. You know, we think of mindfulness as a kind of miner's headlamp, and the quality of it being the quality of the light that we're shining on things, you know. But it's very much in that um, common imagination, an event that's happening from us, into the world, right? We're walking through the world with our miner's lamp on and we're noticing what the quality of the light we're casting is, okay? Um, in the koans, it's made quite clear that life is much weirder than that and that the gaze is actually going in both directions. That not only are we gazing, mindfully or not mindfully, at the world, but the things of the world, the others of the world, are gazing back at us. Um, so the thread here, remember, is we're talking about how it unself-centers us. Okay, so this is one of the ways. Um, for those of you who've been hanging around for a while, you will know that one of my favorite koans involves um, an image where someone's talking about something like this and, and someone asks, well, what's that like for you? And he says, it's like a donkey sees a well. 
You know, that's what we are. We're the donkeys, you know, with our miners' headlamps, and we see the well. And that's one view. And, and the other one says, well, that's, that's part of it, but it's not all of it. And so the other one asks, well, what's the rest of it? And he says, it's like the, the well sees the donkey. That there's this mutual gaze going on. Um, one of the things that we might experience that is in retreat or in other times that are similar to that where we begin to really feel the sentience of the trees and the rocks and sometimes they even begin speaking to us but we really are aware of their living presence and, um, and of their gaze on us that there's something happening in both directions that is also a kind of mindfulness to be aware of the sentience of all others rocks and trees and everything else and to be able to begin to um, feel your way into a relationship with all of those others is another form of mindfulness quite different than the headlamp theory of mindfulness there's beginning to be a relationship there's beginning to be a relationship that will become crucial to what we understand as being mindful. So, um, if we are courteous in our relationships, we will listen, we will pay attention. And um, this, is, this is where we begin to get into the sense of the moral um, claim that other things have on us. It's the claim that we will listen, the claim that we will pay attention, that our gaze, to use um, the philosopher Simone Weil's wonderful formulation, our gaze will be a just and loving gaze on each thing. Just meaning, I think, as, as, as I, what I believe she meant by just was accurate looking carefully, really paying attention to what's actually there, and loving being, of course, loving, as we understand it. Um, that's a pretty good definition of mindfulness, I think, a just and loving gaze. As long as we understand that there is a gaze coming back at us, there is a, there is a relationship happening. So out of this just and loving gaze, out of this desire to listen, um, then, then we might bring in a, a, a great Theravadan definition of mindfulness, which is letting others speak for themselves without first interrupting. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a matter of interrupting you know, with our words, but I mean, think how we interrupt with our stories. Think how we interrupt with our personal narrative. Something is beginning to speak, something is beginning to become apparent to us, and man, we're making meaning out of it, you know, right away. We're, we're slotting it into our grand narrative of our life. That's, for, that's interrupting. That's not letting things speak for themselves. Um, try withholding meaning for a while and see what, what, the, what happens to the quality of listening. So what I'm describing here, this kind of way of being mindful of the others, of the world, is um, what is technically called in, in the Mahayana tradition, tathagata, which is really seeing the thusness, the suchness of things, really seeing the particularities of each thing, letting them be vivid and speaking for themselves and not being um, um, 
dragooned into our story. When we're attuned to these relationships, the more that we're attuned to them, we begin to experience the self less as the location of the narration, you know, less as the arbiter of of meaning and importance, and much more as um, something in a field, in a very large field of awareness. Um, There is the field of everything that we're experiencing, and our mindfulness is becomes a part of that field. It's not something moving through the landscape with the miner's headlamp on anymore. It's not separate from the field. It's we become to see, we come to see how we are actually continuous with the field, not separate from it. We're not um, having an experience of the field of our awareness. We aren't doing one thing, having an experience in the other, in the field of awareness. But we are now aware that we're part of that field of awareness. And that there is an identity between um, ourselves, our awareness, and what we're experiencing. If we experience the self in this way, as, as... not separate from the field of its awareness, then perhaps we begin to um, experience ourselves not as observers, not as commentators, not as pilgrims through the landscape, but as a kind of warm intelligence suffusing the field. And we become equally aware that there are all these other warm intelligences suffusing the field. And in fact, the field is made up of the confluence of all of those warm intelligences. That field is as big as you let it be. Um, It will include as much as you allow it to include because it itself has no natural boundaries. The boundaries that we experience are the boundaries that we place on it, not that are natural to it. If we turn that same kind of uh, mindfulness inwards, it's really interesting to me that a contradictory thing happens. I've been describing an experience where the self gets put into perspective because it's, it's now part of something so much bigger than what it is. And so our sense of what the self is changes. Um, you know, there isn't one and it's vast. <laughs> Um, so that's one way that's one thing that happens is is, um, how we see who and what we really are in relationship to everything but when we turn that same mindfulness inwards there's a kind of contradictory movement which is that um, instead of the thoughts 
and feelings we find in the interior landscape being elevated to a kind of vivid and startling reality as we experience in the outer world with Tathagata. When we see things as Tathagata, they become vivid and startling in their reality. But our th- that do- that's not what happens to our thoughts and feelings. They're actually made less substantial. The same gaze that looking outward begins to see things as, whoa, that's so vivid, that's so real, that's so there. When turned inwards, looking at our inner life and thoughts and feelings says, oh, that's so insubstantial, that's so empty, that's so ephemeral. Um, so so why, this, um, why this contradiction in what the same gaze does, depending on whether it's turned outward or inward? I think because there is this great leveling going on which we have called the wisdom of equality. What we've done is we've so elevated the vividness of thoughts and feelings and so um, downplayed the vividness of the other that what has to happen for them to come into a kind of equality is for, for everything else to become so much more vivid and for our thoughts and feelings to become a whole lot less vivid, you know, and a, and a lot more... Um, insubstantial and, temp- and te- uh, temporary, and when when that's the adjustment that's going on, it's the same gaze, and it's bringing those things into equality, so that we are actually experiencing the outer world and the inner world in the same way, um, and so you know we can see how amped up our experience of our thoughts and feelings have actually been in the past and in some way how muted our experience of everything else has been. When that happens, then um, our thoughts and feelings actually start to feel not so personal anymore. We begin to see them as rising and falling in the field just like everything else. Not more special, (laughs) not more important. You know, trees rise and fall, a conversation rises and falls, the candlelight flickers and rises and falls, um, geological ages rise and fall, and thoughts and feelings rise and fall in exactly the same way, and we begin to disidentify a bit with them. They begin to seem less personal and to seem just like another thing, rising and falling in the field. And sometimes... um, when, when we're lucky, we can even begin to forget um, why we ever thought we should give them a particular pride of place in our lives or be, be most particularly concerned about them as opposed to anything else. The other thing um, which is startling in its own way is that we, um, we, we realize the extent to which we have been continuously telling ourselves lies about the way things actually are. Um, When we experience ourselves as a kind of individual moving through the landscape, when we think of ourselves as separate and alone and and perhaps even fundamentally alienated, um, when we think that things don't change or we think think that things change too much, Um, if we think that our thoughts and feelings are more important than anything else that's happening, all of those are lies we're telling ourselves. And we begin to see that very clearly, and it begins to become painful to lie to ourselves like that, and much easier to let that go and look at 
what's actually happening. So, if we begin to feel this sense of dissatisfaction with the unreal picture we've had of reality, what's a, what's a genuine antidote to that? Um, as the Buddha lay dying, he had some final words of um, advice. And one of them is, part of it is usually translated as something like, all conditioned things are subject to decay, strive on untiringly, you know, or accomplish earnestly. Um, but one, one translator, Roberto Colasso, whose work I admire tremendously, uh, renders this final admonition not as accomplish earnestly or strive on untiringly. He says, act without inattention. Act without inattention. So this isn't even an admonition to be attentive. It doesn't add something like attention, right? It doesn't say, be mindful, be attentive, be aware. As a kind of practice, it takes something away. It says, take inattention away, and then what's it like? Act without inattention. That's a really different viewpoint. It's a viewpoint that has a certain kind of weird freedom to it, I think. Um, and then you're, you're free to, look, to experience what the pure act, without the added inattention, is like. Because once you've taken the inattention away, there's just act. So what's that like? What is acting like when you take the inattention away? What is looking, tasting, loving, suffering when inattention is gone? Um, That got me thinking about our permanent inattentions. I think we're familiar with our kind of momentary inattentions, the things that we allow to distract us from from what we're doing. Um, Some of you may feel this talk has gone on quite long enough and are experiencing a momentary inattention (laughs) as you speak. Um, (laughs) But there are also permanent inattentions. And I think this is interesting. You know, for example, we all have relationships or have had at some time relationships in which the other person is still five years ago or 30 years ago. You know, we're still dealing with them as though it's five years ago. That's a permanent inattention. And if we're stuck on what someone was like five years ago or five minutes ago, um, we're not attending to what's actually going on in the moment. We're um, We're not alive to what's actually happening now. Um, another kind of permanent inattention is an obsession with something, where we're now um, in relationship with the obsession and not with the thing anymore. You know, so we've permanently unattended to the thing and moved into our obsession. Um, so I will I will leave you now with an example of all of this, um, which speaks so much to acting without inattention, I think, and, and not surprisingly, it's, it's art, because there's so many um, enactments of, of acting without inattention in, in the arts. Um, 
I'm going to be gone for two weeks and then we'll resume in three weeks. So I wanted to leave you with a bit of a poem and a, and a few words about that poem to, to take with you over the next three weeks. This is the beginning of um, a poem by Yuda Amachai. It has one of the great titles of poems. God's change, prayers are here to stay. <laughs> Isn't that great? God's change, prayers are here to stay. So, this quite long poem begins like this. In the street on a summer evening, I saw a woman writing on a piece of paper spread out against a locked wooden door. She folded it, tucked it between door and doorpost, and went on her way. And I didn't see her face, nor the face of the person who would read what she had written, and I didn't see the words. So in here, in Ahai's beautiful evocation of an ordinary moment in the street, um, there are a number of themes that we'll be coming back to in, in, in the weeks to come. The first is that mindfulness, as I hope is you know, becoming apparent, is so much more than observation. That true mindfulness is really a love song we're singing to the world. You know, that just and loving gaze is a song of appreciation that we're singing to the ordinary world, the world of our daily lives. It's, it's, um, it's an appreciation back for everything that the world gives us. Um, another theme will be the way, if, if, if the world is the dream, which is Dharma 101, if the world is just a dream, what is it like to awaken within the dream? Not out of the dream, but within the dream. What is it like to accept that it's a dream and wake up inside of it rather than trying to get out of it? How do we um, do that through mindfulness? Amakai's language is so spare and direct and simple. But in those spare and simple words, I can completely enter the dream of that um, Jerusalem street on a warm night, you know. My dream enters its dream. Um, the dream of that locked wooden door and of the woman writing something against it. There's nothing added, nothing extra, just a profound report of a, of a just and loving gaze at a moment. Um, and within that, an appreciation of how rich the world is without adding anything, without putting anything extra in. Just as it is, the world is so rich if we look at it mindfully in this way. Um, and the third, the third theme that appears here that we'll come back to is that mindfulness crucially includes an awareness of what we don't know as well as what we know. And I didn't see her face, nor the face of the person who would read what she had written, and I didn't see the words. That's what couldn't be known in that moment. And that is as real and important as what 
can be known. And there's no sense of loss there. There's no sense of something's missing. There's no sense that we have to do anything about that. We can love that. Love what we cannot know as much as we love what we can see and what we can know. So that mindfulness in any moment of that part of the moment which we, we don't know about is tremendously important as well, and we'll come back to that. So that, again, nothing missing, everything complete, just as it is, including what we don't know. I will leave it there for tonight. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.